Welcome to Cornerstone. We're glad that you're here. Today is a uh, very exciting day. It's my favorite Sunday of the year. Today is Vision Sunday here at Cornerstone. If you're not uh, a regular attender here at Cornerstone and you haven't been around for a Vision Sunday, um, Vision Sunday is a time at the beginning of the year that we stop and uh, we talk about where we're headed and uh, what's going on in our body and we maybe deal with uh, uh, some issues that might be going on or some spiritual discernment that God has given us. Um, we stop again in the first week in June and sort of take stock as to where we are in regard to Vision Sunday and in light of Vision Sunday. So today, it sort of sets the pace for where we go. Today sets the pace for where we're headed for the course of this year. Today's Vision Sunday is split up into two parts. Two parts. And uh, this would be four parts. Today's Vision Sunday, two parts. One part is going to be the practical, pragmatic part over here. The other part is going to be the spiritual part over here. We're going to deal with the practical side of things first, and then we're going to deal with the larger, bigger picture things second, all right, with the uh, spiritual stuff that's going on. Um, I think that today, hopefully, I'm praying that today, that it's a, uh, a time of um, revelation and of clarity that God is giving into a spiritual attack that has come against our region for the course of the last six months that we honestly just got started getting discernment into in the, couple, in, in the last couple of months. I think that when I explain what's been going on and some of the spiritual discernment that we've received around it, that some of the experiences in your life will begin to click into place as to, as to what's going on. Um, and uh, that'll, be the, that'll be the second half. First, we're going to deal with the uh, practical, pragmatic side of things. Does this sound like a good plan? What time is it? Thank you. Oh, man. I got it. All right, here we go. Uh, Pastor Matt sends you his greetings from his bed. He is sick today. He's very sorry that he could not be here with you because he gets as excited about Vision Sunday as I do. And uh, so uh, Pastor, one of Pastor Matt's roles here at Cornerstone is to oversee our deacon teams. Uh, we created deacon teams last year. Actually, last Vision Sunday was when we sort of launched our deacon teams. So deacon teams have been meeting here at Cornerstone uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the last year. Um, the deacon teams are, are, are based off of our identity, vision, and mission, right? Um, if you look at Acts chapter 6, the scriptures talk about the, uh, the apostles being torn between caring for the practical, pragmatic ministries of the church and the word and prayer, the spiritual ministries of the church. And so deacons were, were created by God through the uh, structure of his church and uh, to carry out and to live out the key things that God uh, has, has called the church to, which is how we treat deacons here at Cornerstone. It, they're a practical, walking-out leaders for the identity, vision, and mission of, of Cornerstone. And so what the deacon teams have been up to is very much based in um, the identity, vision, and mission of Cornerstone. Um, so just as a reminder, uh, Cornerstone's identity is that we are the bride of Christ and a body of believers or I'm sorry, a body of worshipers, not believers, rooted in our sonship. I and mean, we all want everybody to have faith in Christ, but faith needs to go way past that to a, a life of worship where you're identified as a worshiper who are rooted in the sonship that God has given us. Our vision is to see the beauty, supremacy, and glory of Christ as the chief concern of all people here at Cornerstone in Lebanon and around the world. And our mission to see that vision, what God has called us to in, in real practical terms, is to make disciples. Uh, make disciples of Christ for the purpose of loving one another, loving our city here in Lebanon and our region and beyond. Uh, these, this identity, mission, and vision get fleshed out through this diagram. Um, what you see here is uh, 
the ways that Cornerstone engages our identity, vision, and mission from thematic concepts. So we see three key things for what it means for us to live our identity and mission and, and, and vision together, and that is that we are in community, that we're in, in Christ, in community, and in Lebanon. Right? And these form for us three perspectives by which we walk out who it is that God has made us to be and called us to be. Um, the elders serve as that in Christ circle, and the elders give themselves to the ministry of the word, prayer, spiritual discernment, a lot of the stuff that you'll hear in the second half of our time together. Uh, our three deacon teams are the in-community team and the in-Lebanon team. Um, the To the World for the Sake of Christ team is sort of this all-encompassing big picture idea. Like, we're in Christ not even for the purpose of ourselves. We're in Christ because God has called us to be believers in this world and to take the, the, the gospel to all the nations of the earth. Um, that all people might understand who Jesus is and worship him in his beauty and his supremacy. Um, we happen to be in Lebanon, so who we are in all of those circles takes place here in the context that we are. Um, and so uh, our deacon teams for the last year have been, uh, have been meeting regularly and establishing a framework for teamwork, um, establishing a framework for knowing one another and knowing their purpose and vision and mission well, and how it is that God would have them walk toward the ends that he has for them. Um, the In Lebanon team has been networking uh, among themselves and also here in Lebanon, particularly with uh, our Homeless Resource Center and a lot of the opportunities that are available to ministry through Lebanon in our Homeless Resource Center. Um, the Homeless Resource Center, the HOPES, as you can see in your bulletin, has a, uh, some needs that Cornerstone would love to be a part of, and the vehicle by that happening is through our In Lebanon team. You'll be hearing more about the uh, work and ministry of the In Lebanon team in the months to come. The In Community team has set about getting uh, a good handle on who Cornerstone is, on where she is, and what she's up to. Oh, oh, In Lebanon team. One other thing I forgot is that the In Lebanon team is understanding that God is clearly at work in Cornerstone already, and is trying to get a handle on what it means for us to be in Christ. So all of you, at some point or another, are going to be engaging the In Lebanon team to find out what it is that your ministries are currently in Lebanon. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, we want to empower and uh, help you become stronger and better at the ministry that God has given you. Um, the in-community team is working on uh, assimilating people and members into our body in more holistic and informational ways. Uh, and the To the World for the Sake of Christ team oversees uh, our MSV connection, Mindanao Strategic Vision, which you'll be hearing a lot more about in the coming weeks. Um, and also have been working on a discipleship paradigm structure for what it means for Cornerstone to live out Cornerstone, which brings us to our second question. I sort of structured these first, th this practical, pragmatic side of things um, as like a frequently asked questions page on a website, right? So what are our deacon teams up to? Second frequently asked question. Not that. What is happening with covenant membership? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because what is happening with covenant membership is that uh, the To the World for the Sake of Christ team is going to be overseeing covenant membership. Uh, the To the World for the Sake of Christ team, along uh, with the elders, has set in place a process that we're going to be offering and lining out for you as a community. The question was sort of like, okay, so how are we going to walk toward this? Cornerstone has never had membership before. We've never believed that you need to sign your name to a piece of paper in order to belong to the body of Christ. We still don't believe that. What we do want is to covenant together around more than that, um, around four key things, intimacy with Christ, community, stewardship, and service, usage of our spiritual gifts. Um, in order to more tangibly grasp onto and move forward in what it means for, God, for us 
to be cornerstone the way that God has called and made us to be cornerstone because he is deepening and broadening things in cornerstone's scope. We are growing and uh, God is blessing in some really cool ways that we're able to engage, particularly our region, in some life-giving ways that um, you as covenant members will be invited into. Um, so covenant membership, uh, there was a question of, you know, how, how do we work this whole thing out? Uh, the, uh, the deacons and the elders together um, decided that we're going to start just at square one, right? And that the process that we're going to ask any person to walk through in the future is the process we're going to w- ask you folks to walk through in the coming months. And so we're going to have a, uh, a time of, of, of getting to know one another on a smaller format. And you can call this a membership class, you can call it whatever it is that you want. But um, either through the vehicle of small groups or through an actual set-aside point in time, we're going to ask you to come together to dialogue and interact with, uh, with our elders and with our staff, um, walking through these four dynamics, a lot of which I taught about last year, but this is going to be in a, uh, a differently structured way. Um, and then to become a covenant member, uh, there will be an, a, uh, a process that you walk through on that day that will culminate in you deciding whether or not it is that you want to become a covenant member here at Cornerstone, um, which will be followed up then by something that happens on a Sunday morning, um, whereby we together um, declare, all of us, that we belong to this body of Christ. Um, Covenant membership at Cornerstone is not primarily for accountability. It is primarily for vision and agreement together on who it is that God is calling and making us to be. We hope to have quarterly uh, covenant member meetings. Now, you may have been in meetings before growing up in churches that had membership. Maybe your church called those congregational business meetings or something like that. And if that word brings anything to mind, it brings to mind, for me, a lot of like uh, mundane, detailed endlessness that often had people fighting with each other. Um, it's not, we're not going to have that. Uh, that's, that's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is for vision. The purpose of this is to continue to speak and to declare and to engage and inform and dialogue about who Cornerstone is becoming, particularly in light of who God is calling her to be. Um, so covenant membership is going to walk those roads. We're going to ask each person here to engage a membership class. We're going to ask each person here to, um, to commit themselves covenantally to being a part of the body at Cornerstone. As such, we'll have covenant member meetings whereby we'll continue to walk out who it is that Cornerstone is made, is made to be and, um, and your role in it more uh, concretely. So that's the second frequently asked question. Um, what's happening with covenant membership? And that'll be structurally walked out in the course of this year. Question number three. Shouldn't people be getting wet? Yes. Yes, they should. People should be getting wet. Cornerstone's rhythm in baptism for the course of, uh, I don't know, these last years has been to have a baptism service in the month of August, which is great. Uh, it's, been, it's been great. We go out to the farm. We... Uh, we have our baptisms, we hear stories about Jesus and the way that he changes people's lives. It's great stuff. Um, we really desire, though, for baptism to become more a regular part of who Cornerstone is instead of this once-of-the-year event. We would rather see baptism become a, a normal piece of our routine where people are coming to know Christ and being baptized um, because that's what we're doing as a body of Christ is, is making disciples, and baptism is one of the first steps of obedience and following Christ. So shouldn't be people be getting wet? Yes. Um, so how are we going to make that happen? You'll be hearing a lot more about that in the future, but that's for another time because i got a big idea. All right, number four. How are things with the building and budget? Wow, that's a good question too, isn't it? 
Um, as you can see, over the course of the uh, uh, last year, things have been very, 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 very tight on a budget level. Uh, as we talked earlier, um, this past year, we almost missed payroll a few times, and that was scary stuff. God took care of us, but clearly God is saying something to us through our finances. He's saying something spiritual, not something practical. Um, there is something spiritual at work um, in the body of Christ here at Cornerstone. Um, there's something going on in you and in me that is causing us to look at our money wrongly. Um, and we're on a mission to figure out what that is from a spiritual component, a spiritual standpoint. Uh, three of our elders have been commissioned to form a team to spiritually discern and figure out what it is that God is saying to us about how we view things. I've been at Cornerstone for eight years. When I first came to Cornerstone, we were a, uh, a, a small group of people holding things together out of New Covenant Christian School. And it was great. It was an exciting time. Um, even then, at that point in time, I'd, I've never seen an offering, a weekly offering at Cornerstone, drop below $2,000. In the last six months, we had three Sundays where it did. Something's going on. Something's up. And we're not just going to keep coming up here and standing up here and telling you people to give more um, because that doesn't do the job. This isn't, about, this isn't about the practicalities of things. This is something spiritual that God is speaking to us, and we don't know what it is but we're going to seek his face and find out what it might be so that together we can live, what we want is to live freely, not grasping on to the things that we have, not holding tight to our checkbooks and wallet, not saying um, all of this is mine and whatever's left over goes to God, goes to the work of of missions, goes to the work of the church, goes to the work of my ministry and in the place where I am and holding on to things. Um, Rather, we desire to live with open hands Uh, We desire for God to have the kind of relationship with us where we are open to him in that, uh, like the Zarephath widow. Remember? She only had a little bit of oil. Elijah said, give me the oil. Make me some food. She said, I can't do that. I'm not going to have anything then. He said, just do it. And so she used up all of her oil, assuming that she and her son would starve. The next morning, what what was in there? More oil. How much oil? Enough for that day. Three years that happened. She gave the oil out. The next morning, there was enough for that day. There's enough for that day, and there's enough for that day. And this is how we desire to approach money, finances, is with God's mindset and God's economy, um, with, with his view of things, not, not with our own. And uh, spiritually, something is up, and we want to figure out what that is. As far as our building goes, um, we uh, are in need of putting together a building team. We need somebody who's wanting to be a building administrator, here at Cornerstone, somebody who's administratively gifted. Maybe you, and we don't, you don't need to be able to do every job on the construction site. We just need somebody that's administratively gifted who can network with our people who do have gifts and talents so that we can uh, take care of, of our building well. Um, it's interesting to sort of watch the snow fall over here sometimes. Um, I just assume it's the blessing of the Lord, like the Holy Spirit came through there and swept through, you know, and so joint compound was never meant just to be smeared on concrete, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, so th- there is some good plans in our future for our building. Um, God has freed up some of the money that he has given to Cornerstone to be able to make some improvements and to take care of things here at, uh, at Cornerstone, but we do need to administrate those things well. And so if you are the kind of person who likes details and who likes networking with people who have gifts that maybe you don't have, um, see an elder, and we can hook you up with that. Next. Where are we headed with our teaching? Here's what I'm worried about. You ready? This is what I'm worried about. I'm worried that we spent the last six months looking at this big, huge picture of who the church is meant to be. 
Remember, we went through this big series on moving from a church plant to being a rooted church, a church that's not just sitting on the ground, but that's rooted in the ground, being people who are rooted in Christ and who the love of Christ is, is our foundation point, unshakable in this. And we talked about all these big ideas about what it means to live as a church who is rooted and not planted in Christ. You know one of the key hallmarks of a church who is rooted in Christ and rooted on the land is? is that we know and consume and just absorb with everything in us the scriptures. And the teaching and preaching of God's word is an absolutely key, essential part of who it is that a church that is rooted in Christ is meant to be. What I'm worried about is that uh, this last six months provided for us um, something of an opportunity to um, idolize vision because we talked about these big church things, right? These, these big ideas, these big concepts and what repentance is and paradigms and ways of thinking with God and how we're going to be thinking with God. The course of the last six months is going to dictate for us who we're becoming. That's great. Uh, if you weren't here for those six months, you need to listen to that stuff. You need to get online and, and, and give yourself to it so that you can understand where we're headed. But as a rooted church, you've got to understand, we're going to consume God's word for the sake of God's word. We're going to teach and preach God's word for the sake of God's word, period. With all of this big, whoa, this is who we're becoming, oh yeah. I mean, we want to become great things. But we can't become great things if we're not rooted in the scriptures. Now, you might remember last June, um, when we started the church plant uh, to, church, to rooted church series, we had just finished the book of First Samuel. Um, so, Beginning next week, we're going to head into 2 Samuel. Um, we think this is a really well-timed uh, teaching series, particularly for the spiritual part that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. Um, but we're going to be headed into the scriptures for the sake of teaching, for the sake of God's word, because God has rich and deep stuff in there for us. And we need to be people who know the scriptures and live the scriptures simply for the sake of the scriptures. Without all this, you know, big, oh, this is who God is, you know, what's called, oh, calling and, and, and massive promises and, and big vision. And, I mean, you just get worn out on that after a while. You need to just have a good meal, you know. And uh, that's what we're getting back to is Second Samuel. So you need to guard yourself against that mindset. <coughs> If you find yourself saying in the next few months that you're bored, check yourself. Just check yourself. I'm not saying that I'm not a boring preacher. I'm just saying that uh, it might just simply be that you're idolizing the wrong way of thinking about the presentation of the scriptures um, and instead need to come back to a solid, solidified, foundational way of just simply interacting with God's word because it's God's word, period. So that's where we're headed with our teaching. Setting things on fire. Thank you for that, Justin. Ah, thank you, Laura. This la- one time, I, I, a couple weeks ago, I took, I had left a book here, and my I don't know if any of you saw it, but I had a sweater on. It was a cardigan, and so it was like hanging open, and it touched the flame. And as I turned around, like you know those little those little wispy things on your sweater, this flame went. Whoosh, you know, I started to, like, come up my, come up my sweater, and it scared me, but I, kept, I held it together, uh, I, you know, like a, like a good strong man, you know, like, ah, you can set me on fire. And that's what John Wesley said about his ministry. People said, what, how, how do you preach, John Wesley? said, I go somewhere, they set me on fire, and watch me burn. 
You know, and that's, I was like, wow, no, John Wesley. All right. That's where we're headed with our teaching. Any way we can describe you better? This is the question you're asking me. Ask me this question. That's a bad Come on, come on, come on. Do it again. Yeah, yeah, you know, our descriptions really should change here at Cornerstone to be more who we're actually being. Um, if you look at your bulletin, you'll see uh, some old descriptions about uh, who Cornerstone is. You know, people have sometimes been confused, particularly new folks, when they come, when they come to Cornerstone are, are confused because pastorally, I don't act like a normal pastor. And frankly, neither does Matt. Uh, we don't act like normal, normal pastors. Um, as elders, as our elder team, we form what could possibly be teamed as a, a normal pastor, but not really. Um, and so we think that it's maybe best for us to just simply call ourselves what it is that we do. Actually, the in-community deacon team is the one that brought this to us. Like, they're making up uh, some really cool, helpful tools, and they said, you know, can we just simply call you what you do instead of churchy terms? So if you look at the title now, I, my, my, my title was lead pastor or senior pastor, right? Matt's, pa- Matt's title was pastor of leadership and church development. Uh, but really, in all actuality, Matt Shepard's cornerstone. I do a lot of the teaching and a lot of the regional leadership. And uh, so moving into the future, uh, we're shifting these descriptions to where my title is now, uh, Pastor of Teaching and Regional Leadership, because that's what I do. And Matt's, past, Matt's title is Church Pastor, because that's what he does. So when you have cornerstone concerns, when you have cornerstone shepherding needs, and you need to connect with a staff member, Matt's the person that you do that for. When it comes to teaching and or regional leadership and vision, stuff here at Cornerstone, that's what you connect with me for. Got it? This is, this is a bigger shift than what you might think. It's not just about titles. It's a, it's a delineation about how we work and how we do things here at Cornerstone, uh, simply naming what it is that, um, that God has led us into. We didn't know that this is where God was leading us into. If we had, we would have called it the right thing from the get-go. Um, but God continues to morph and shift and change things, particularly in Matt's calling. And since he's not here, I'll talk about him. Um, which is that Matt has, I mean, just grown leaps and bounds in his, um, in his pastoral leadership. Uh, he still has this unique call to serve as a bridge between urban and suburban contexts. Um, but the ability to do that in a local church concept is almost zero. But Matt's actually figuring it out. Like, he, he's, he's actually figuring I've never seen it happen where suburban and urban actually live together in, life, in life-giving relationships. You know, there's sort of nods here and there, pulpit swaps and money swaps and these different kinds of things. But Matt's actually figuring it out. It's, it's an amazing thing. Um, all while he's leading our deacon teams really well and constructively here at Cornerstone, um, yeah, God's doing some really great things. You should not be worried at all about uh, uh, seeing Matt as your church pastor. His scope and ministry and authority has increased exponentially since you came on staff. It's great to see. Matt, if you listen to this, we love you. Okay, next. Anything coming up in the next six months or so? That's a good question. There are things coming up in the next six months or so. Uh, We're going to be celebrating Ash Wednesday coming up in February. The Romans made a calendar that we follow. God made a calendar that we should think about as well. Sometimes even so much so that God's calendar should actually trump the Roman calendar that we get used to. And this is why we do things like this. If you've never been to one of our Ash Wednesday services, you really should come. It is an experiential delight. 
about mourning and death and is a really good thing for all of us to engage. We're going to be engaging the liturgical calendar more in the coming years, be it through Ash Wednesday. We already do it through Easter, uh, Pentecost Sunday, you know, these different places and along the way. This year we might even talk about Lent a little bit. I don't know what the heck Lent's about, but Justin does, and I trust Justin. So uh, I do know what I'm giving up for Lent, and I'm already preparing myself to prepare myself to give it up because it's going to be hard. Um, but I think, I think that there's something to be gained in this. I've never engaged this stuff before. I grew up Baptist. You do your own thing. Um, but there's this strange historical liturgical thing that has some real mystery and purpose to it that I'm sort of excited about engaging. So we'll see what happens. It's good stuff. So on the practical, pragmatic side of things, uh, I know I was a little scatterbrained. Matt was supposed to do some of that, but you folks know where he is. So I was winging it. If you got any questions about anything, particularly like the deacon stuff or things like that, talk to Matt. Don't talk to me. All right. Although I really want to talk to you. I love you. John 10, go. What I want to talk to you about in the second half of things that I'm hoping will bring some clarity and insight into possibly some of the events that have been going on in your life, some of the events that have been going on in our region, um, even some events that have been going on on the East Coast, um, is a, uh, the concept of spiritual warfare and spiritual attack. Um, through discernment and uh, just through watching and listening and thinking, uh, looking at our region and the regions around us, um, and also if, if you're at all linked to any kind of apostolic figures, if you follow Elijah list, if any of these things, um, uh, there's been a ton of prophetic statements about, man, something is going on, like something is up. The amount of insanity um, in our region and in our world, um, and meaning our, not the whole world, but like, you know, our world, the, the world that we live and, and walk in, is, is huge. Uh, particularly over the course of the last six months, things, things started to break open right around last June, and they just kept breaking open more and more. And there was that terrible shooting in Colorado, and there was the Newtown massacre, and there was the ins- all the just vicious hatred and insanity both ways uh, through the whole political election, um, you know, from right to left and left to right, and just this, it's, things have been up. Um, something has been going on. The attack has intensified over the course of the last two months. Um, people are getting really, really sick, um, just laid out for days at a time, no good reason why. You know, things are, um, there's these crazy happenings, you know, where um, it's stuff that you, like, like that's clear, clearly demonic, you know. Uh, um, a 10-year-old shoots an, a 12-year-old with a gun because he's angry at him, you know. That happened in our region. You know, kid steals a car from his parents and runs it into a telephone pole and dies. You know, I mean, there's, there's all this, like, craziness that's going on. I bet things have been crazy for you on some level or another, either in your family or at your workplace or in your own heart and mind. Like, you can't figure out what's going on, but you do know that things aren't right, that something is up, and that uh, there's some temptation that's going with it as well. Verse 7 of John 10. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Let's pray. God, we want to declare right up front that we want your life, that we want the abundant life of Jesus. 
that we desire to see your life reign, that we want to see your life flowing in and through our families, our workplaces, our schools. We desire for your life to come and for us to live in it. We recognize that your teaching here is real, that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So teach us what it means to understand your work and to be with you in the midst of spiritual attack. In Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, Justin gave us a, a really helpful paradigm. All right? um, here's a key spiritual warfare principle. You ready? If you're taking notes, you should write this down. When God opens a door for spiritual attack, he gives you the weapons that you will need beforehand. When God opens a door for spiritual attack, which always has to happen, the devil and the world have no right to the believer other than what God allows the enemy of the leash to have. Right? And so when God allows for spiritual attack in our lives, the enemy uses it to try and steal, kill, and destroy. We know that one of the key principles of God's economy is that what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. That's right. And so God views these things very differently than we do. Now, it sometimes it's very difficult for us to view it the same way that God does because it hits us so deeply. It hits us so personally. Um, but when God gives, when God opens a door for spiritual attack, he will give you the weapons that you need to handle that spiritual attack beforehand. So when you find yourself in the midst of spiritual warfare, you do have what it takes to be victorious in that spiritual warfare. He will have given it to you beforehand. Justin, paradigmatically, through his teaching on John 10 a few months ago, gave us this paradigm that I think is the way that God is calling us to come against the spiritual attack that we're currently in. And what Justin lined out for us was this steal, kill, and destroy thing, which are the three strategies of the enemy, and then three ways that God empowers the believers to live against the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy comes, the thief comes to steal, right? When I think about a thief coming to steal, I think about Genesis chapter 4, where it's Cain and Abel, and Cain has killed his brother, and God says to Cain, um, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Right? Justin taught us that this word steal, it means to pilfer, right? It's a little here and a little there. It's not a massive, ba- it's, not, it's, not go- it's not taking a tank into Fort Knox and ri- robbing all the gold bars, right? It's just a little here, a little there, a little joy here, a little peace here, a little love there. And the enemy pilfers, he steals these things. This sin is crouching at your door, right? It's hiding. It's waiting for you to leave so he can go in. He can take what he wants. Or he's waiting for you to come through the door. He can surprise, right? And just pilfer here and there. Steal the purse. Take the joy. And the enemy comes to steal. Sin is crouching at your door. The thief comes to kill. I think about Jesus where he says to Simon, 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 Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for your faith that you may not fail. When you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat. You know how you sift wheat? You beat the heck out of it. You put it in a, in, in, in a, in a slatted floor. And you take this big rod and you just beat and beat. You kill that wheat. You pummel it to death. And all the chaff flies away. The seed falls to the bottom and then you have wheat. And that's what Satan wants to do. When I think about the, the thief coming to kill, it's that being sifted like wheat. 
the thief also comes to destroy. I think about 1 Peter 5 here, where Peter says in his epistle, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He wants to destroy you, right? So sin is crouching at the door, trying to, you know, just take a little here and take a little there. The thief wants to kill. He wants you put in the threshing floor, and he just wants to beat you until you're dead. A lion... This is not a process, right? This is pure destruction. This is pure devouring. It's here you are, here's the lion, rawr, and you're gone. Right? This, is what he did. this is the way the enemy comes. Stealing, killing, and destroying. When you have a spiritual attack that comes and finds you, another principle for you, when a spiritual attack comes at you, it will come at you one of these three ways. And generally just one. The thief will either begin stealing, pilfering, a little here, a little there. It'll be killing. It'll be a repetitive, over time, a processing, just beating and beating and beating. Or it'll be for the purpose of destruction and devouring. It will be trying to get all of you dead right now. Like I said, over the course of the last six months, we have discerned a large spiritual attack that has come against uh, our region, and by our region, it might even be our nation, although I don't have any national authority, and therefore would hesitate to say that, but I do see a lot of the same kinds of insanity and craziness everywhere else. I, for sure, as I can, the most positive I've ever been about anything, no, that this attack is most certainly coming against southeastern PA and the surrounding areas. Jersey, New York, Delaware, these are the places that I have the opportunity to lead and to help, and I'm telling you, it's everywhere. Um, there is an attack, and it's one of these attacks that, like, I, I knew something was wrong before God gave the discernment as to what was wrong, but didn't know what it was, and it's because I was analyzing it just too darn closely. Like I said, last June, things started to get nuts here around Lebanon. The main way that I saw things getting nuts was through all the shootings that were happening. There were guns going off all over the city. I'm thinking, what the, what the heck's going on? A few years ago, Cornerstone was part of a spiritual warfare move against the Masonic Temple here in Lebanon, whereby we even planted a house of prayer in there. That was a massive work of spiritual warfare. Having a house of prayer on that land, in that place, closed a door into Lebanon that allowed for some really good things to grow and to become good in our city. So when this insanity started happening, uh, there were like there was violence that was happening that I couldn't figure out. There were s- stabbings on top of it. A new gang came into town right around that point in time in, the, in, in June. That had, that wh- I don't understand why the heck they would ever want to come to Lebanon. Like, they, they, it just didn't make any sense, but it was happening. Um, I knew something was up, and so I started doing spiritual discernment, you know, trying to figure out. Called in, back up. Calvin's come up and helped out along the time. God never gave any solid discernment. You know, we were looking into all, all kinds of things. You know, was it greed? You know, we were looking into, uh, was there something wrong and broken in the church and leadership? You know, have we let our, go- I mean, everything, every stone that we turned over, where it wasn't, there wasn't discernment underneath it. And then, toward the end of November, beginning of December, God started to bring some things out. One of the things that he most used to bring it out was the massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, because when something like that happens, it's a 
devouring, right? That's not, that's not a pilfering. That's not even a processed beating. It's just a lion and destruction. And it was at that point that I was sort of like, oh. Hmm. One of our sisters here in the body at Cornerstone forwarded me a, uh, an email from um, Ransomed Heart Ministries. John Eldridge, maybe you've read Wild at Heart, whatever. Um, did you guys, did I, I forgot to tell the greeters to pass these out. Did these get passed out? Did they? A, called a prayer for life. That helped give some discernment. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Anyway, it's one of those things where, like, you know the enemy? Another principle, spiritual warfare principle, is that if the enemy can get you to win the wrong battle, he's fine with that. If the enemy can get you to fight the wrong fight, that, that's fine. If you're over here fighting greed, when the actual issue is lust over here, he's fine letting you think you've got a handle on greed. Yeah. Go for it. Because his actual stronghold is over here. This was sort of like the same thing that was happening. Because what God gave us discernment into was that the attack that was coming against us was a devouring attack, a blatant attack. Not some like in the back door thing, but a full-on frontal assault from a direction that we didn't see it. And we believe that we're being attacked by a spirit of death. That this is a, a, a spirit of death that has come against us. You can see a spirit of death is described somewhat in Revelation chapter 6, one of the four horsemen, a, uh, a clear spiritual entity that God um, you know, gives rain to move and to attack um, as those doors are opening. And um, this spirit of death has come against our entire region. This is a painting uh, by Peter Brugel. It's called The Triumph of Death. Right? It's called The Triumph of Death. Um, I would encourage you to go home and Google it and uh, look at it on the screen because you can see more detail by getting really up close to it. The point is this, is that what, what you have here is an army of skeletons who are coming against a people. And this army of skeletons represents death, um, is doing all kinds of crazy things. Down here in this bottom corner, there's a, there's a dinner table set. And this army is walking right up to it. And a couple of the people are still trying to act like they're just sitting there and eating. There's even a couple down here that has just been finished with dinner, and now they're sitting around and, and playing music as the skeleton looks over their shoulder with his own guitar and is smiling at them, right? Back here in the uh, uh, midway up the right side, there's a door that's open. Maybe you can see a cross on it. And there's a bunch of crusader shields across the front. This is the army of death with this facade of, oh, here's a safe place for you. We've got the cross on our fronts. But this door that's opened is just a trap. And people are flooding into it, into this army of death. There's a hangman's gallows. There's, a, there, there's all kinds of insanity happening over here. A, uh, uh, a skeleton is playing a hurdy-gurdy as he, as he uh, is dragging a wagon full of dead people. Um, the, the, the triumph of death is explicitly laid out, laid out here by, by Brugel. Um, as you look at this and as you contemplate it, it's important for you to know and to remember that Brugel's interpretations of the way that death works and the destruction that he wants to wreak is absolutely legit. Like, he's not pushing any lines. This is what death wants. Th this is the kind of misery that the enemy desires for the people of God. 
th- this is it. Like, this is not just for the people of God, but the enemy hates all, all humans across the board, and he wants death to reign. He, he desires to have you and your family steal, killed, and destroyed. Stolen, killed, and destroyed. Period. That's all that he desires. There is nothing good there. And when a spirit of death is unleashed in an attack upon a people, it brings some of the most destructive, insane kinds of things that you could imagine. A lot of the same things that we are experiencing on some level or another. I've asked Barry to come up and give us a quick five-minute illustration um, about another military attack that will help us bring a parallel as to how it is that it's possible to miss something as big as death coming to attack you. Barry. Stopwatch. (laughs) You say five minutes. It means five minutes, right? Um, So by the summer of 1944, World War II had been raging on the outskirts of Europe for about four years, for over four years. And uh, by the summer of 1944, the Allies, that's the United States and our allies, had determined that the only way that we were going to beat Germany outside of, to to get the Nazis out of Germany or out of Europe was to invade Europe itself. And so in June of 1944, the Allies launched the largest invasion ever in the history of Europe in order to drive the Germans out of France, out of Belgium, and back into Germany and end the war. By December, between June and December, the Allied advance had gone tremendously well. And the, the Allies had the Germans completely on their heels, nowhere more than in the south of France, where General Patton, U.S. General Patton, and his Third Army were driving the Germans back into Germany. And every German leader in the high command was terrified of this one man, General Patton. But all across France, the the Allies were pushing from west to east across France. By December of... You got it? By, By December of 1944, we had reached something of a stalemate. And the reason we had reached a stalemate is because one of the things that characterized the Allied advance across Europe was a lot of um, pride and infighting and a lot of fighting between generals and countries. And one of the issues was that the British were not happy with the advance that the Americans were making. And the Americans were very jealous of the advance that we were making. And so in order to, to bring this back and in order to bring back some of this internecine fighting and pride, we had shifted some resources from the south of France, moved them up to the north so that we could try a different attack, to come into Germany from the north instead of from the south as we were, as we were having success in doing. By doing so, we shifted resources from the south of France to the north, and we launched this offensive that was failed, that failed in the, in the fall of, of 1944. So by 1944, December, if you look uh, along that right line where you see Germany in the pink, that's the line that, that, the, that World War II had taken. Between the west is, is Belgium and France, to the east is Germany. And this line right along the east, this dark line, right where the pink is, is about where the lines were. We had reached a stalemate. Whatever initiative that the Allies had had in the south was now gone, and there was a stalemate between the two armies. And this, we're coming into December, 1944, and the center Right of that, in the center of that screen is a little place called the Ardennes Forest. And the Ardennes Forest is this thick, thick, very uh, unmanageable, unnavigable forest. And the Allies saw this forest and said, of all of the places where we think we are the most safe is the Ardennes Forest. 
So what the Allies did in December of 1944 was to shift all of their most tired units, all of the ones that had been in the fight the longest, to the middle in the Ardennes Forest, and then to take new units that were coming from the United States and put them in the Ardennes Forest to get them ramped up for the coming war that was, that was waiting, they thought, at the, end of, at the end of the winter in 1944. At the same time, intelligence saw that Germany was massing about 20 divisions just east of the Ardennes Forest. But our intelligence just figured that Germany was going to be fine fighting a defensive battle until the rest of the war so they could end the war on their own terms and get better terms. They were just going to fight the defensive and we were safe in the Ardennes. Well, on December 15th, at December 16th, at 0530 in the morning, 530 in the morning, Germany launched 20 divisions on an attack through the Ardennes forest, the one place that the Allies thought they would not come. And in the middle of the Ardennes Forest were two divisions. The 106th Infantry Division, fresh from the United States, had never seen any action at all. And the 28th Infantry Division, which, if, you're, if you know anything about it, is a division that was comprised mostly of Pennsylvanians, of uh, Pennsylvania National Guard at the beginning of the war. These two divisions took the brunt of the German advance of 20 divisions through the middle of the Ardennes Forest. And the, this, this battle started with Germans taking units dressed in American uniforms and they would, they would seize roads and they would seize bridges. They would knock out communications. They would send false communications throughout the radio network so that the thing that reigned for the first five days of what soon became the Battle of the Bulge was chaos and confusion. The Allies had no idea what was going on. And every, they didn't trust any American unit. They didn't trust any communication that they had. They didn't trust anything. And so what we had by the end of the first three days was this line stretching out. You can see it in yellow, which, is, which became known as the bulge. The Germans had advanced all that distance through the entire Allied front, and their goal was to take the, the port city of Antwerp in Belgium. And they had stretched all the way through. Every American division in the theater, every British division in the theater, was engaged in combat at this time. The only reserve that the Allies had were two tiny battle-worn paratroop regiments, or divisions. They sent one to Saint-Vith in the north, and they sent one to Bastogne. Jay, can you light up Bastogne? Can you see it? You don't have the pointer? Bastogne. And these two single divisions held these two cities against German attacks for over a week. The characteristics of this time right now were severe cold and very bad weather, snowstorms and blizzards all the time. These paratroop divisions in Bastogne and Saint-Vith had no equipment. They had no winter clothing, and they were fighting against overwhelming numbers, sometimes as many as five and six times their numbers holding these positions. And the Allies decided that they had to act quickly. And what they did is they, in the South, General Patton, who had lost many of his resources, decided that what he had to do was change direction. His men were facing the East. His 20 or 30 divisions were attacking East. He changed direction in one day. 90-degree direction, turned all of his divisions and attacked north in order to cut the German bulge in half and to relieve uh, the troops at Bastogne. One of, the, one of the stories of the Battle of the Bulge is that there was a blizzard that was going on that was hindering uh, General Patton's movements. And he asked a, he actually ordered a chaplain to develop a prayer that he could pray to remove the weather. And this chaplain wrote the prayer uh, General Patton delivered the prayer, and by Christmas Eve, blue skies and his soldiers were allowed to advance and to continue on the advance. And he gave the, the chaplain a medal for doing that. Could you go to the next, the next slide? 
One of the things that typified the Battle of the Bulge was after Christmas, the, the battle changed. And so rather than a German offensive, the Allies began a counteroffensive. And this counteroffensive was, was typified by fighting over every hill, every ridge, every intersection, and every town. The Germans did not give up easily. And all of that area that the Allies had previously gained in the, in the prior fall had to be refought for. At, at severe cost. And one of the things that typified the Battle of the Bulge was atrocities. And one of the atrocities took place on the second day of the battle. The Germans captured about 150 American soldiers at a place called Malmedy, and in a field, murdered all of them. And the Germans weren't the only ones to do this, but this really stuck out in the consciousness of the soldiers that fought in the Bulge. These atrocities. In the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this huge battle that was taking lives everywhere, the one thing that stood out was the insanity of this murder of 85 Americans in this field. And that was one of the characteristics that to this day still sticks out about the Battle of the Bulge. In total, Americans, over the course of this three-week battle that ended in January, lost approximately 110,000 men to either killed, wounded, or missing. 19,000 Americans were killed, about... 82,000 were wounded, 62,000 were wounded, and the rest were captured or missing. German numbers, we have no idea. Somewhere between 80 and 100,000 men killed, wounded, or missing in the space of that time. And all of this is because, primarily, because the Allies forgot who their enemy was. They forgot that this was the German army that in the span of about four months had seized almost all of Europe. In the greatest offensives the world had ever seen, the Allies forgot who the Germans were. And the Allies gave the initiative to Hitler to do what he wanted to do. And they had forgotten the battle that they were supposed to fight and were fighting one that they weren't supposed to fight. And that's the Battle of the Bulge. And that's, uh, that's the, the lead into this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? We wrestle against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. The, st- the thief comes to steal kill, and destroy. The Battle of the Bulge plays illustratively, illustratively, into what it is that's happening in Lebanon now, which is that on some level, there was a weak spot that the enemy has exploited, not just Lebanon, but in, in, our, in our region, and it's beginning to affect people. It's affecting people in very, very real and tangible ways. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, things have just felt off, and things have been even violent, many times um, on physical, emotional, and spiritual levels. Um, We believe that what the enemy has brought is this destructive attack that is a spirit of death. Now, we're going to talk more about that in a little bit, but let me just remind us that for each of the steal and kill and destroy, God has brought a counter-offensive, right? In the place that the enemy would want to steal things, God has brought redemption. In the place that the enemy would want to kill, God brings transformation. In the place that the enemy would want to destroy, God brings creation. So if we are under an attack of death that would be to destroy people and to destroy the people of God, then creation has something to do with what it means for us to live in the midst of this attack that the enemy is leveling at us. So what you can see in the way that it lines up is that God's strategies, they're not just like lined up against the seal and the store, but they're better. You know, I mean, we got to remember who we're talking about here. This isn't 
This isn't, this isn't a, a fair fight. Uh, this isn't the Germans versus the Americans, two really, really big, huge armies that are going to duke it out over some ground. This is a God who has already won this battle and who is calling us now to live and step into that victory, right? Who has allowed for whatever this is that's coming against us, this spirit of death, so that we might gain something from it, both for his kingdom and for his glory, not even for our own. This isn't about you and me being free. This is about the freedom that God gives us, bringing more glory to God, right? And so as we live under this attack and as we live in this attack, it's important for us to do so with a correct perspective. Where the thief comes to destroy, God would desire to create. The question is, is what's the enemy's objective? What's the enemy's objective? What is he trying to destroy? We believe that he is trying to destroy life. And you might say, duh. You know, like, it's a, it's a death spirit. It's a spirit of death that's coming against us. So we're trying to, the enemy's trying to destroy life. Yeah, you're great. Um, well, you got to realize um, that when it comes to life, there's a lot of ways to die, right? There's a lot of ways to be dead. There certainly is this horrible concept of death like we witnessed of these small children. You know, like that, that is definitely a, a horrible, destructive death. You know what else is death, though? Is a Christian that's checked out, where the enemy would sap the life out of us, where he would draw life down so that we just become robots, so that we're just living. We're going to work. We're taking care of our kids. We're paying our bills. We're planning our vacations for this summer. We're having family over for the holidays. We're living. That's not living. God calls his people to so much more than that. But the enemy would want to destroy life in us and turn us into mechanized Christians. People just going through our ritualistic motions. And then when he does bring the attack so strongly against us, we're completely thrown off because we had no idea that it was coming because we forgot who we were fighting, just like in the Battle of Bulge. And suddenly the enemy brings these 20 divisions against us and we're out of place and we're out of line and we're not checked in and we've forgotten what's actually happening. And life begins to be destroyed. Like I said, this first showed up for me from a discernment standpoint with the amount of shootings in Lebanon. In the course of the last six months, all these pins represent a shooting uh, that's happened in Lebanon. Um, you know, and it, it's a lot. I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's exponentially more than what is normally happens in our city. Um, it's, it's a lot. Um, and, and some of these are actual, like, murders, some of them is just people that don't know what else to do except shoot a gun. One of the stories is an old man who's arguing with his granddaughter, and he doesn't know what to do, so he shoots his gun. You know, you know what I mean? Like, he shoots his gun through his ceiling, through his bedroom, right up over top of him, and out through his roof. It's like, why are we using guns to argue with our grandkids? He didn't want to hurt her. You know, he just, in his mind, I guess he felt like he didn't have any other options. 
It's nuts. And all these different pockets of things. And maybe you, I'm sure you heard about the one over on the, the playground over on Walnut, at Walnut and Lincoln, you know? Kids are out playing basketball. There's an after-school fight. Kid brings a gun and starts shooting it off in the air. What the heck? You know, what, what, is, what in the world? But, like I said, this is sort of like that obvious thing. Like, huh, there's a lot of shootings recently. But I wonder what's more destructive. I wonder what's more life-sucking. This or this? I wonder what destroys life more, a gun or a beauty pageant? Right? I mean, is there anything more twisted than a beauty pageant? That's crazy. Putting a bunch of beautiful, feminine, God-created people in a competition about who looks better as if women needed any help comparing themselves to other women anyway. We commercialize it and do it in a little 30,000-person town like Lebanon. You know what I mean? I can understand Donald Trump being dumb and doing it in Atlantic City. He's Donald Trump. But here, a beauty pageant for ages 0 to 27? Are there 27-year-olds running around that actually want to do this? Probably so. They probably also read beauty magazines, which are second only to the life-suckingness of this. What's more destructive? What kills life more? Somebody pulling a trigger or the enemy destroying femininity like this. This is what we have to wake up to. Like, this is where we, ha- we, we, the people of God together have got to become more aware. We have to wake up. We have been lulled to sleep over this time. We become robotic, mechanized, and we need to get back to the truth that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but that the enemy has something for us, and it is a destructive attack right now for this time. And these are just two examples. They could go on forever, but I don't have time. God calls his people to a strategy of creation where the enemy would bring a destroying spirit, a death spirit that wants to destroy life in all of its various forms. God brings beautiful creation. Even this story up here on the screen. You know, this man with the withered hand, and it's a Sabbath, and and the Pharisees, they try and trick Jesus into working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the hand became restored and healthy, just like the other one. Right? This man was given death in his body. And Jesus created life through it. I think that this is the strategy that God would have us called to. Are you saying, Jay, are you telling me to go out and heal people that have withered hands? Well, Yes. And also, heal people that have withered spirits and withered minds. And that are Christians who are asleep and who are mechanized and who are robotic. I think that this is real. I I think that what the enemy is up to in this destruction of life, death, spirit, attack, is, is legit. Like, he is really bringing it. And we're asleep. And we need to wake up. So from a spiritual strategy standpoint, 
what can we do? I have six things for you. Did you notice we went right into Aslan's head there? That was on purpose. Here, let's watch it again, just because it's really cool. I'm going to go from there, and I'm going to go right into Aslan's mind. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Spiritual strategies. I got six of them for you. Number one, personal and family inventories. You're here today, and you're hearing me say this. You need to take a personal and family inventory. Are you asleep? Have you been becoming robotic in your faith? Right? God does not make us as machines. He makes us as living, breathing people that he wants to continually pour his life into. Have you been having the life sucked out of you? You've got to go and look at your idols because idols suck life. So if you worship mammon, like if that's one of your weaknesses is mammon, it's very possible that you've been worshiping mammon and it's been sucking life out of you. Right? If you have whatever your idol might be, if it's significance, if it's inappropriate ways of trying to be important, you need to look at that. Right? Is that idol sucking life out of you? If you're worshiping Baal, right, this deity that gives power wrongly, and you're feeling wrongly empowered lately, if you're becoming a victimizer on some levels at work or with temptation of sin that you struggle with, you need to look at this like you're being lulled to sleep if that's the case. Watch out for your kids. Right? Your kids don't have these levels of discernment. They need help. And so it's important that we come alongside of our children. This prayer that I gave you, it's called a prayer for life. John Eldridge was, sent out this big bulletin um, about uh, right after the Newtown, Connecticut shooting. Like, hey, we got a piece of discernment. There's a death spirit attack that's coming against America. And as such, he penned this prayer for life, which is a really beautiful prayer. Um, it's great. It's a great place to start. If you're wondering what it looks like for me to declare life over me and my family, this is a great template to help you with. Um, so personal and family inventories. Number two is wake up. Be aware. Wake up. Be aware. The, your enemy is a lion. He's prowling around, seeking whom he wants to devour. You need to be awake, aware, not lulled to sleep. As Christians, we must awaken ourselves. Number three, stand and resist. This is what another, the other strategy that First Peter gives us. Stand and resist. Also Ephesians 6, you stand firm. You stand and you resist. You say, no, no, death will not find me. Death will not find my family. I live in the abundant life of Jesus. Right? And you declare this over yourself and your people. You continually speak your own standing in Christ to you. If there is sin, it will block the ability for your spirit to receive the depths of what it is that that truthful standing can give you. So just be clear with God. Be clean. Be open. There's grace and beauty. Stand and resist. Number four, targeted worship and intercession. Look, we don't have, I'm telling you what the battle is. I am not telling you that I know regionally how to fight against this thing yet, but I'm hell-bent to find out. Um, the place to start always in all spiritual attack is getting to God's presence. If you're not in God's presence, how's he going to tell you what's going on? You can run around like a chicken with your head cut off, reading all kinds of books, doing all kinds of things. 
but it may or may not be what it's supposed to be. Right? It seemed the Ardennes Forest made sense to the Americans. Clearly, it made sense to the Germans, too. Right? And so unless you are in the presence of the one who actually can see the whole battle and who's won it for you, then you're going to miss things. So being in God's presence is key. Being in God's presence is key. This uh, prayer and intercession that we're doing on Thursday nights is a fantastic mode of warfare against this death spirit attack. Get in God's presence. There's another thing that we're doing. If you look at your bulletin, um, you'll see an announcement that I put in there. On February 1st, we're going to have a school prayer walk. We're going to meet here at Cornerstone, and I'm inviting all of you, and I'm inviting anybody else in our region that wants to. But we are going to walk to every school in Lebanon, all six elementary schools, the middle school, Lebanon Catholic, and the high school. And we're going to pray over these places, and we're going to ask for God's protection and for his life to flow to and through the schools. I mean, is anyone else tired of seeing school shootings? I'm so tired of it. It is heartbreaking every time. That Monday after Newtown, I, there was actual fear in my heart when I kissed my kids goodbye that morning and watched them run up to the school. You know, it just was sort of like, what the heck is going on? So we're going to cover these schools in prayer. And I, that, I think that's a piece of revelation that God gave us. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to lead it. We're going to do it together. And if you want to come and join me on that day, you are more than welcome. If you are interested in leading, I, I'd love for us to uh, prayer walking Cedar Crest and Anvil and all those. That'll be difficult. Um, so we're going to prayer drive them. I just need some people to head it up. Cedar Crest, Anvil, Cleona, uh, Elko, uh, Northern Lebanon. Um, I feel like I'm missing one. Uh, what's that? New Covenant Christian School. Thank you. Um, thank you. Palmyra. That was the other one. Um, we, uh, if, if you want to head up prayer driving for some of these school districts and the schools that are contained in them, uh, please see me because I would love to cover our whole county and uh, the school districts that are contained within it. Um, I think it's an important thing for us to do, and I think God said it. So targeted worship and intercession. Come on Thursday nights. And if you're interested in being a part of this prayer walking for our schools, let me know. Number five is regional work. Regional work. In other words, this is not just a Lebanon thing. This is a big thing. So we need to be praying and listening consistently about our region. It is so easy for us to stay independent and isolated. We can't do that. Create, create, create. Number six, create, create, create. The enemy wants to destroy. God wants to create. And he oftentimes creates through his people. And so it is that that God is calling us to. And you should heed Justin's invitation for our community art project very, very carefully. All right. We're going to sing. Um, the, uh, I, I just want to bring this thing, whole thing full circle and say again that um, Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And that he is the king and the victor. And that God knows and sees what it is that is happening in Lebanon and our region. And that he has everything under his control. When the scriptures say, all the earth is yours, it's dead serious. Like this is, f with God, we are safe.
He is our refuge and our fortress, and in him we trust. Without him, we are lost. We are lost. There is nothing that we have without Christ. And worshiping Jesus and being in his presence is the safest, most beautiful place that we can have. When we enthrone him and name him as king and set him over this in all ways and in all things, his victory is sure. And we might have to walk through a process with him in this that he is with us in and that he has lined out and that his grace and goodness protect us by even when pain finds us in some of the most heartacheful ways. But our God is good and he is king. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace and your life. We thank you for the beauty of Jesus that finds us in our deep pockets and places of brokenness. We believe, God, that you are doing a mighty redemptive work. And we invite you into the spaces and places of our hearts to draw us in there with you. Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. God, you are our life, and we are in you. The enemy would bring an attack that would destroy us, God. But we declare today that you have conquered sin, death, and the grave, that you have conquered the enemy, that you are the victor, and that he is defeated. God, teach us what it means for us to stand in your victory. Um, I think of that uh, verse in First uh, Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we would stop there, but your text doesn't. There's another verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So God, keep us standing in your victory by rooting us in the unmovability of your work. What the enemy means for evil, you mean for good, and we are with you. Where the enemy would steal, kill, and destroy, you desire to redeem and transform and create, and we are with you. And therefore, God, make us people that live in your government, in your economy, in your way of doing things, that we might have freedom and life, not just for ourselves, but for these people in this city that we live with. We pray for people who can't pray for themselves. Standing in the gap as the people of God, declaring your love over a city that would want to be shamed. We say no more, God. We bless you. We love you. And we declare that today is the day of your victory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to end uh, by singing together um, the doxology. I forgot to say two things that I really wanted to say. Number one is that I've noticed in this course, this attack, is that people who aren't from southeastern Pennsylvania in the last six months have really wanted to get out of southeastern Pennsylvania. 
If you're not from here and you've had a really strong desire to leave here, you should know that that might not be you, that that might be the enemy, and we really need you. Uh, help. Help from everywhere, I think. This is one of those things. The second thing is that I've heard an extraordinary amount of criticism lately against Lebanon, against our city. Um, and uh, I would just encourage you to remember that when God made Lebanon, he said it was very good. And um, Lebanon is very good. And it's been some pretty crazy stuff. Like, I've, I've heard people get honestly angry over the last couple of months about the fact that, um, that we don't have a target yet. Um, the store, I mean, a target. And uh, it's okay that we don't have a target. God's got a really deep piece of redemption and work that he's doing here. Like, you can't let your view of where you live be determined by what commercialized products may or may not be available, right? It's little things like that, right? So just be really careful. Watch yourself. Um, be really aware. Just like Scripture say in 1 Peter, be alert. Your enemy is prowling. Resist and stand.